Good morning, Bethel. All right, so earlier this week, I was in Memphis, Tennessee with Pastor Chris, Pastor Derek Parks of Epiphany Wilmington, many of you all know him, and Dave Jackson, who's also with Epiphany. We were in uh, Memphis for a conference that was put on by the Gospel Coalition commemorating Martin Luther King Jr. on the 50th anniversary of his death. At the conference, speakers and panelists reflected on King's legacy, on his work, on his vision, and they focused on the fact that justice, that racial unity are gospel issues that we must not overlook. They talked about how we, the church, can and should in the present pursue racial justice, unity, and reconciliation. It was, it was really, really good. I was encouraged. I was challenged. I was convicted. I would encourage you guys to listen to the talks online. If you are interested, let me know. I'd be happy to point you in the right direction to show you how to access those. So on April 3rd, 1968, the night before King was shot and killed at the Lorraine Motel, he gave a speech at the Mason Temple in Memphis that's been called, I've Been to the Mountaintop. In that message, he called his audience to develop, quote, a kind of dangerous unselfishness. Now, what he meant by that, I think, was an unselfishness that is willing to put oneself in harm's way for the good of someone else. An unselfishness that is willing to help others even if it costs me something. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. powerfully lived that out. He sacrificially practiced what he preached. He suffered much for the cause of liberty, justice, and equality for all. Ultimately, he gave his own life for it. Now, we're currently in a series in 2 Corinthians, which was written by the Apostle Paul around 56 AD. And this morning, we're looking at chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. In this passage, and I think really in the Apostle Paul's life and ministry as a whole, I want to suggest that he, Paul, as he follows in the footsteps of Jesus, models for us a kind of dangerous unselfishness. And I think he does that in at least three ways in our text today. One, divine jealousy. Two, humility. And three, protection. So let's dive in and look at that first point, divine jealousy, verses 1 to 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 969. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 1 to 6, page 969 in the Pew Bible. The Apostle Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. 
Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So I think Paul seems a little fired up here in these verses, and I think with good reason. So remember the situation that Paul's addressing here. He planted the church in Corinth. It was through him that the Corinthians heard and embraced the gospel. But not long afterward, false teachers came into town and started challenging Paul's apostolic authority. They pointed to things like his suffering, his speaking ability, and his methods as evidence that he's not the real deal. He's not who he says he is. He shouldn't be followed. Unfortunately, the church rejected Paul, and they followed these charlatans. So Paul, he wrote the Corinthians a tearful letter that's lost to us. We only see reference to it. But he wrote them a tearful letter urging them to repent of their rejection of him. And thankfully, most of the church did. Some of them, though, were still holding out. And that's what Paul's speaking to in 2 Corinthians. That's the situation. He's calling those who have turned back to him to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he's urging the unrepentant to turn away from their rebellion before it's too late. And at this point in the letter, when we get to chapter 11, Paul is taking the gloves off. He's fighting to win the Corinthians back, to call those who remain unrepentant to turn away from those false apostles and turn back to him, and most importantly, to turn back to the Jesus that he proclaims and serves. And so here in chapter 11, verse 1, he asked the Corinthians to bear with him in a little foolishness. Paul's getting ready to answer a fool according to his folly. The false apostles who came into Corinth commended themselves. They put the spotlight on them and what they had accomplished. Sometimes it seems they even boasted in the labors of other people. Paul, on the other hand, boasts in the Lord. Paul boasts in what God has done through him. So both Paul and the false apostles boast, but it's entirely different. There's a big difference in what motivates their boasts and in how they boast. But because Paul loves his people, he's going to engage in the type of foolish boasting that characterizes those false teachers, although even that's going to come with a twist. We're not going to go into this in detail today because it's not in the passage that we're looking at, but Paul's going to boast in his weaknesses. So even when he boasts foolishly, he turns the braggadocious tactics of the false apostles on their head and magnifies Jesus. But before he does that, he wants to know the Corinthians why he's going to do it. And here's the reason. He feels a divine jealousy for them. And he's concerned that they are being led to embrace a different Jesus than the one he proclaimed to them. Now, that phrase, divine jealousy, it may give us pause at first. When we think of jealousy, we typically, and rightly so, see it as a negative thing. So a person gets jealous because her friend spends time with somebody else. A husband 
gets jealous because his wife talks to another man that he sees as a threat. And on and on the list goes. Now, it's important, I think, to point out that uh, not all of that jealousy is bad. It can be a righteous thing for a husband to be jealous for his wife, for him to desire that her affections be in the right place. But so often, while those good desires may be present, they don't come alone. They're mixed with things like selfishness and envy and mistrust. So is there a kind of righteous jealousy? Yeah, I think there is. Paul calls it divine jealousy, but the question is, what does he mean by it? On Paul's day, about a year prior to the wedding ceremony, couples were betrothed to one another. Betrothal was a legally binding agreement that could only be broken by death or divorce. During this time, sexual relations were considered immoral. Infidelity constituted adultery. All right, so in verse 2, Paul likens himself to a father who's betrothed his daughter, the Corinthians, to a husband, Jesus. And he has a goal in mind, to present her to Christ as a pure virgin on the wedding day, the day that Jesus returns. Paul's the father of the bride. He led the Corinthians to Jesus. He is their spiritual father in the faith. And like a good dad, he's determined to make sure he presents them to Christ, their husband, pure on the wedding day. So what does that have to do with divine jealousy? Well, Paul is jealous for the Corinthians. He doesn't want them to stray from Christ, but rather for them to stay faithful to Jesus, to keep their eyes on him. That's not envious. That's not domineering. That's not selfish like human jealousy tends to be. No, that is selfless. That's biblical. In fact, it reflects the character of God himself. Did you know that God is a jealous God? He says as much in Exodus 20, 4-6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." God chose Israel. He set his love upon them. He made a covenant with them, and he wants what is best for them. And what's best for them is to love and be faithful to God. Running away from their maker and finding delight in cheap imitations is not only a cosmic affront to the God of the universe, but it's also a horrible disservice to the one who's rebelling. It is so because those cheap imitations won't satisfy, and they're only going to lead to ruin. God's holy. He must, he must punish sin, and he doesn't want his children to experience that. He wants them to delight in him, to find satisfaction in him, to stay close to him, to spare them from the pain that comes from disobedience. That's divine jealousy. It's not sinful, selfish, authoritarian, 
No, it is rooted in God's holiness and God's love. And that is the kind of selfish, divine jealousy that Paul feels for the Corinthians. He's not worried about his reputation. He's not worried about being liked. He's not pridefully offended that his authority is being questioned. No, he cares about the Corinthians' loyalty to him precisely because as an apostle of Jesus, to receive him is to receive Christ and to reject him is to reject Christ. He wants the Corinthians to stay faithful to Jesus. He doesn't want, them, he doesn't want to see them follow other suitors who will only cause them pain. He wants them to be happy in Christ, to cling to the only one who can bring them true satisfaction, to the one who deserves all glory and honor and praise. But there is a problem here. The Corinthians' eyes are wondering. They're being led astray. They're in danger of departing from their betrothed. So Paul says in verse 3 that as the serpent deceived Eve in the garden... He fears that the Corinthians' thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Satan is crafty. He is cunning. He targets the mind and disguises his evil intentions. That's what he did with Eve. He didn't present himself to her in the garden as a destroyer, as a hideous demon hell-bent on causing her ruin. He disguised himself as a serpent and slithered in and asked her questions, causing her to doubt the God who made her. And it worked. Eve bought into his schemes, and she sinned against her maker. That's what's happening in Corinth. False apostles are in the city undermining Paul's apostolic authority. But this isn't necessarily an overt kind of rebellion. They don't seem to be denying the deity of Jesus. They don't seem to be denying the resurrection of Jesus. No, it's likely that they would have agreed with a lot of Paul's theology. But they are challenging Paul in ways that betray, that expose their true malicious intent. Here are just two examples of charges they seem to bring against Paul. One, Paul suffers too much. A true apostle of the risen Christ should be characterized by abundance and blessing, not that kind of weakness. Do you really want to follow someone who has the stench of death all over them? What they missed is that Paul in his suffering is not only modeling Jesus before the Corinthians, but he's ministering Jesus to the Corinthians. Jesus was poor. He was homeless. He was rejected. Ultimately, he was executed on a Roman cross all in order to save his people from their sins. What does it say about the false teachers that they are pursuing a lifestyle of abundance instead of pattern, patterning their ministry after Christ? And two, another charge they brought against Paul may have gone something like this. Paul doesn't speak with the eloquent, eloquence one would expect of a true apostle. Where's the winsome rhetorical style? Where's the smooth, convincing, impressive speech that just flows off the tongue? What they missed is that Paul intentionally refused to adopt the wise speech of the culture. 
Paul resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified so as to remove every stumbling block from in front of the Corinthians and to keep Jesus front and center. That doesn't make Paul inferior to those super apostles. It makes him gloriously different. As he says in verse 6, he may be unskilled in speaking. He doesn't speak like they do, but he's not so in knowledge. No, Paul's made this plain to the Corinthians in all things. He's set the gospel of Christ crucified clear in front of them. So do you see? The false apostles, verse 4, they proclaim a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel than Paul does. They may have some points of agreement. Remember, they are cunning. But the heart of their proclamation couldn't be any more different. Paul follows Jesus in a kind of dangerous unselfishness that sticks his neck out for the good of others, for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. But Paul's opponents selfishly pursue abundance and they promise health and blessing and wealth to those who follow them. One commentator describes a situation like this. The problem is that they, the false apostles, I think, are talking glibly about Jesus. They're claiming the power of the Spirit. They are enthusiastic about the gospel. But there is a subtle and all-important difference between their Jesus, their Spirit, their gospel, and the true one. The true Jesus was the one who suffered unspeakably. The true Spirit is the one who groans within the suffering of the world. The true gospel is the message of the crucified Lord. And the teachers who have come to Corinth after Paul left have been quietly toning down this hard, rough edge of the gospel. It doesn't fit with their social and cultural aspirations. It doesn't sound so good in terms of rhetorical style. In particular, it doesn't give them the reputation and status they're hoping for. If you really believe in the suffering Messiah and pattern your life according, accordingly, they think, you might end up looking like, yes, like Paul, and that's what they don't want. And the heart of the matter here, the reason Paul has a divine jealousy for the Corinthians is what he says in verse 4. The Corinthians put up with this readily enough. They're willing to be taken advantage of by these snakes promising a false, deadly bill of goods. Paul loves them way too much to sit idly by and let that happen, to sit idly by and let them continue in their rebellion. He feels a divine jealousy for them. So Bethel, I think we need to be asking the question, do we love each other like that? Do we have a divine jealousy for one another? How great would it be if we could all wholeheartedly in unison say, it grieves me when you stray from the Lord and it thrills me when you draw near to him. My heart's desire is for you to be joyful in Christ, for you to stay faithful to him, for you to make it all the way home. That's what divine jealousy looks like. And we desperately need to have it for one another. Let me give you some examples of what I think this can look like maybe more practically on the ground. Now, some of these are broad in nature, but 
I hope that they start moving our thoughts in the right direction. So husbands, divine jealousy looks like loving your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's really similar to 2 Corinthians 11, I think. Wives, it looks like submitting to your husbands with joy and encouraging them in their leadership of the family. Parents, especially dads, it looks like intentionally bringing your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All of us, husbands, wives, parents, singles, whomever, it looks like speaking the truth and love toward your brother or sister who's living in sin and buying into false doctrine. It looks like correcting your brother and sister when they indulge in a little harmless gossip. It looks like reminding your brother or sister who's addicted to pornography of Jesus' words. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. It looks like waking up, or waking up early or staying up late so that you can meet with a brother or sister who has a hectic work schedule for accountability and encouragement. It looks like asking one another, how are you doing, and really stopping and listening to what they have to say. It looks like weeping with those who weep. It looks like rejoicing with those who rejoice. It looks like pleading before God's throne on each other's behalf. And I'm sure we could go on. The enemy is cunning. He is like a lion seeking someone to devour, and he uses all kinds of subversive tactics to do it. And we are prone to wonder, prone to stray from the God we love. So we need each other. We need each other in this fight. Sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness is a community project. I need you, and you need me. This is going to require us to get to know each other, to be vulnerable with one another about our struggles and temptations, to say hard things to each other at times, to encourage each other. And we can do that in a number of contexts, but this morning I want to draw special attention to community groups. Community group is the primary context for these types of one another relationships to develop. So if you are not in a group, let me encourage you to join one. Today's a community group Sunday for most of our groups. You can go out in the hallway and we can get you a list of the groups that we'll be meeting. I would encourage you to pick up one of those sheets to contact a group leader and to visit a group today. Now, if you are in a community group, let me encourage you to really dive in. Be vulnerable. Be honest with the folks in your group about how you're really doing. Look for ways to encourage one another, pray for each other, serve each other, hold each other accountable, minister to one another. This isn't easy, I know. There's risk in living like this. There's sacrifice. This takes a lot of time and effort. You might be rejected. Someone may not reciprocate your kindness toward them. You might speak openly about your struggles only to be met with silence. But remember this, when it's hard, God is a jealous God. And Christian, he's jealous for you, and that is a really, really good thing. Your maker, 
the God who saved you and brought you from death to life through faith in Christ wants you to draw near to him, to delight in him, to rejoice in him, to know his steadfast love. He doesn't want you to wonder. He cares for you. That's good news. And guess what? That God, our God, he cares for your brothers and sisters too. And he sovereignly put you in their lives as an instrument of grace to keep them from stumbling. So let's pursue a divine jealousy for one another and the strength that the Lord supplies. Paul models that for us in his ministry to the Corinthians. He also models, and this is our second point, humility. Look with me at verses 7 to 11. He says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. So here, Paul's responding to some backlash that he's received for preaching the gospel in Corinth for free. His intentions were pure, but yet again, they've been misinterpreted, misconstrued, and used against him. Paul didn't have to preach for free. He could have accepted money from the Corinthians. That was his right as a minister of the gospel. Jesus gives precedent for that in Luke 10, 7. He sends out 72 disciples and he tells them, and remain in the same house, eating, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Paul himself acknowledges this right to remuneration in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. He tells Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy 25.4. And the laborer deserves his wages, which is a reference to the text we just read, Luke 10.7. So Paul could have asked the Corinthians to financially support his ministry, but instead... He seems to have supported himself through two other means. One, he worked as a tent maker. Luke mentions that in Acts 18, 1 to 3. And two, he accepted help from the Christians from Macedonia. He explains that with a bit of hyperbole in 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, the text we just read. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. He doesn't literally mean that he robbed them. Uh, this isn't a Robin Hood situation, stealing from the rich, giving to the poor or something. He means he accepted support from other churches in order to serve them. And he says, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Now, it's important to step back and point out how these practices opened Paul up to risk. In first century Corinth, orators, at least the good ones, they didn't work with their hands. Instead, they charged the fee for their speeches. And the better the orator was, 
the more money he could charge for his speech. Do you see the problem with what Paul's doing? By preaching for free and by supporting himself through tent making, he was not only taking on unbecoming work, he's working with his hands, but he was also willingly doing something that could have made him look incompetent. It'd be like LeBron James or Ben Simmons, 76ers, trying to contextualize a little bit, or Carson Wentz, Eagles, or choose your high-profile athlete. It'd be like them playing for the league minimum salary. If you didn't know any better, you'd assume they weren't that good, right? And there's more. By accepting support from the Macedonian Christians, Paul was risking offending the Corinthians. They likely wouldn't have minded throwing some money his way. After all, it seems like they were just fine paying the false apostles for their work. So Paul opened himself up to risk through these methods, and real consequences actually followed. Remember why he's writing these verses. He says in verse 7, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? And in verses 10 to 11, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine that he preaches for free will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. That's where Corinth was. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. So apparently, the false apostles, the false teachers claimed that by preaching the gospel for free and supporting himself through other means, Paul wronged the Corinthians. Paul showed that he didn't really love them. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Paul deeply loved the Corinthians, and he wanted what's best for them. So I think the question is, why in the world then did he preach for free? Why didn't he just take some support from them? Why did he assume that risk? I think the answer is in verse 7. Look at it again. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? He humbled himself. He preached for free even when it cost him in order to exalt the Corinthians. He graciously refrained from burdening them with his needs. And for a people that was all too easily swayed by power, prosperity, smooth speech, he sacrificially removed a potential stumbling block and instead set before them the free proclamation of the gospel of Christ crucified. He cared more about the Corinthians and the gospel of Christ than he did about his own reputation. Although they didn't apparently see it, he was willing to deny himself to take a harder route of receiving support and to assume risk all in order to lift them up, to exalt them, the people he loved. That is what humility looks like. That is a kind of dangerous unselfishness. And like divine jealousy, it reflects the character of God. Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the supreme example of humility, of that kind of dangerous unselfishness. He died for us. He humbled himself 
for us so that we might have life. Bethel, let's strive to live like this by the power of the Spirit. Let's follow hard after Christ, deny ourselves, and humbly serve one another for each other's benefit, even if it costs us something. Now, that could take shape in all kinds of ways. I'll give you just a few. It could involve serving in ways that aren't glamorous. So you may not be in the spotlight when you provide someone a meal, but you are giving food to a brother or sister in need. You may not be in the spotlight when you serve as a trustee, as a deacon, or as a facilities team member, but you are are participating in work that is vital to our ministry. You may not be in the spotlight when you serve in the nursery, but you are giving a gift to a parent who would love to attend the worship service or the missions conference and know that her child is being cared for. It could also involve serving others in ways that are costly and at times uncomfortable, like lovingly setting aside your Christian liberty so as not to put a source of temptation in front of a brother or sister, like giving up your time to minister to folks at the Sunday Breakfast Mission or the Mary Campbell Center or Urban Promise, like inviting into your home not just folks from our church family, but also your neighbors, your coworkers, people who aren't like you, who need Jesus and community just like you, or like intentionally thinking about how to minister to people in their context. Remember, Paul didn't minister to the Corinthians the same way he ministered to the Macedonians. So like intentionally thinking about how to minister to people in their context and share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus, even when they might reject you, your message, and your efforts. So Paul, as he follows Jesus, models for us divine jealousy, he models for us humility, and third, he models for us protection. Look at verses 12 to 15. He says, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Here, Paul's saying that he's going to continue his practice of refusing financial remuneration from the Corinthians for a specific reason. He wants to undermine the claim of the false apostles who claim in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as Paul. I think this seems like it would be really effective. So remember, the false apostles, they valued money, prestige, uh, abundance. So while they may claim to work on the same terms as Paul does, one area where they are never going to try to imitate him is in his practice of preaching for free. And so in this method of, Paul, uh, of Paul's, it serves to expose the false teachers for the snakes that they really are. Their wallets are getting fatter and fatter, while Paul, meanwhile, is spending himself for the sake of the Corinthians. They are seeking financial gain, while the Corinthians themselves are what Paul desires, not money. Paul is truly, sacrificially, humbly, selflessly laboring for the good of his people, but his opponents are pridefully and selfishly working for themselves. 
And the danger for the Corinthians is that if they follow these charlatans, they're going to face judgment along with them. So Paul gets really clear. He puts his cards on the table and calls his opponents out for what they really are. False apostles, deceitful workmen, servants of Satan disguised as apostles of Christ and servants of righteousness. Their end, Paul says, will correspond to their deeds. When they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, they will receive their reward, which will be eternal punishment and separation from God. Paul wants this evil exposed. He doesn't want his people to follow these fork-tongued so-called apostles of Christ. So Bethel, we need to have that same kind of zeal to protect one another. I think this can happen in at least five ways, and I'll run through this quick. One, we need to live differently from the world so as to expose false teachers. If we truly love what God loves, hates what God hates, and minister like Christ, we will be able to better recognize those who operate with evil, selfish intentions. Two, we need to know doctrine well enough to spot pretenders. Remember, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. That means they're going to be hard to spot. They may talk a lot about Jesus. They may quote a lot of scripture, but they'll be preaching a different gospel. So we need to know what God's word says so we will be able to distinguish truth from error. Three, we need to correct error when we see it. So I was born and raised in Tennessee, as you all know, and in the South, we have a tendency to be really nice, to be really non-confrontational, at least to your face. A friend of mine, he noticed this in me once, and he challenged me to correct people when they make untrue statements. He told me to say three simple words, that's just false. Now, I'm not saying we do that. All right, we need to operate with truth and grace. Well, we don't need to wait with anticipation for somebody to say something wrong so we can like pridefully swoop in and correct them. We don't need to even necessarily correct every single incorrect statement we hear. Some things need to be let go or gently overlooked in the moment. But there is no virtue in allowing false doctrine to go unchecked. So we need to be watchful. If we hear something that's out of step with the truth of the gospel, we need to lovingly, gently, graciously provide correction and we need to seek wisdom from the Lord to do that well because I know I need it I think we all need it four we need to know each other well if you don't know me if you're not aware of what I'm reading if you don't know what I'm listening to if you don't know what I'm struggling with if you don't know what questions I have you can't really help me cling to the truth of God's Word we said that earlier when we talked about community but again we need each other. Sanctification is a community project. And five, we ourselves need to pursue faithfulness to God. We need to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We need to be in our Bibles. We need to be constant in prayer. We need to delight ourselves in God. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Paul models uh, the Lord here with divine jealousy and humility, and he does the same thing with protection. Jesus says in John 10, 11 to 13, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, 
who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He continues in verses 27 to 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given, to me, given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus gave his life for us. He is the supreme example of a kind of dangerous unselfishness. For us and for our salvation, he put on flesh, lived a life of perfect obedience to God, died a sacrificial death on the cross and rose from the grave three days later, and he is pleading for us even now before the throne. And so if you are here today, and if you're not a Christian, let me beg you, turn away from your sin and run to Jesus. He's good. He's the good shepherd. He is worth it. He is willing and he is able to save you. All that he asks is that you come to him with the empty hands of faith and receive the free gift of salvation that he offers. For those of us who are following Jesus, let's model our Savior and labor to protect one another from the schemes of the evil one and let's celebrate together what Christ has done for us. One of the ways that we can do that as a church family is through the Lord's Supper, through communion. The men who are serving, you guys can go ahead and come to the front. When we come to the table, we come as sinners in need of grace. We have the opportunity here to confess and turn away from our sin and trust in the Lord as we celebrate God's grace toward us. God is a jealous God. He wants us to cling to him and run from all other pretenders. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross for us. Jesus laid down his life for us so that we might rest secure in his mighty hand. There is much to celebrate at the table this morning. So let's confess our sins and let's thank God for his grace. And let's eat the bread and drink the juice, which symbolizes Christ's broken body and his shed blood on our behalf for us and our salvation. So if you're trusting in Christ, if you are a baptized believer, you are welcome to participate in this sacred meal. After we pray, we will distribute the bread and the juice together. Just hang on to both of those. After everyone has been served, I'll come back to the front and we will partake together at the same time. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we are really glad that you came today. We would ask that you please let the elements pass as we hand those out. There's no shame in that. Instead, let me encourage you to take this time to reflect. Take this time to pray. Take this time to ask Jesus to save you. Remember, he will and he's able. If you'd like to talk more about that, I or any of these guys here would be happy to talk with you after the service or later in the week. All right, so as we prepare to partake, let's pray. Father, we love you. You are so good and kind to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to model Paul 
but most importantly, to model Jesus in divine selfishness, humility, and protection. Lord, we need your grace for that. We need your wisdom. We need your empowerment from your spirit. Lord, would you please do it? And Lord, would you please uh, minister to us now? Please fill us up uh, with joy at what Christ has done for us through his shed blood on the cross as we partake of the table together. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.